This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast and for the last time for a while, it's coming from me, Patrick Maguire. Yes, Matt Chorley is finally back on Monday. But in the meantime, we're going out with a bang. Today, we're asking the question, did political correctness save comedy? Now, that might sound crazy, but it might just be true. I'm going to speak to David Stubbs, the author of a new book on the history and politics of British comedy to test that theory out. That's coming up after today's Columnist Panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Friday and I'm joined by the Times' chief art critic, Laura Freeman. Hi, Laura. Hi, Anne. And Alva Ray, host of Politico's Westminster Insider podcast. Hi, Alva. Hello. Uh, great to have you both. How are you? How are you, Laura? I'm very well, thank you. I'm looking out of the red grey sky. I was going to say, it doesn't feel very August today, sadly. <laughs> Although I'm in, I'm in August company. Uh, Alva, how are you? Oh, good, thanks. I mean, apparently it's warm rain rather than cold rain, which makes a difference, I've, doesn't it? You know what? I haven't checked yet. Uh, I don't really want to, given how grey it looks from Times Radio Towers. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's kick off uh, with Westminster's favourite topic of conversation. Every journalist loves talking about this. Working class. 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 Working class. Working class. Working class. Class. Working class. Uh, Now, some guy called Patrick Maguire has written a column in this morning's Times about the Labour Party's uh, very deliberate uh, shift in language. You know, for years and years and years, people like Tony Blair and other Labour modernisers didn't like talking about class, class war, class envy. But Keir Starmer, in the past couple of weeks, and especially around A-level results day yesterday, has started talking about working class, about his working class childhood. Other shadow cabinet ministers do the same thing. Labour talking about wanting to smash the class ceiling. Alva, this discussion has always been a bit of a taboo. You know, for the past, say, 20 years, what you call the Labour Party's modernisers, or they call themselves the modernisers in the Labour Party, have always defined themselves against sort of class politics. What do you think has, what do you think has changed? Well, I actually think that this makes complete sense. Um, our former colleague, Patrick, at the New Statesman, Anush Shekelian, has done a lot of work on class. 
And her, she sort of has worked with a, with a polling company to poll British attitudes towards class. And what she consistently finds with these pollsters is, is that the British public consistently overestimates how working class it is. And um, I think a quarter of people who earn £100,000 or more think that they are working class, um, not just have a working class background, but are still working class. And I think that that, you know, anecdotally, that rings true. Everyone's keen to claim a working class heritage, even if they just have one grandparent who was a postman, um, no matter how far they've they've traveled um, socioeconomically since then. So I think I think it makes complete sense um, in terms of in terms of the pitch, because that, that actually applies to quite um, a big chunk of people, really. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Labour Party can be very sentimental uh, about class, particularly, as you say, sort of living vicariously through it i heard recently of a of a selection meeting where someone got up and said um you know vote for me my grandfather was a minor um which is you know a, a couple of degrees removed but it goes to show how class is seen within the labor party and the labor movement more broadly uh, particularly as we move away from the world um evoked as i write by harold wilson's favorite artist ellis lowry you know the chimney stacks etc etc i mean we love to talk about class don't we laura as a as a as a nation, you know, it's one of those things that we feel guilty about talking about. A bit like you know, money and religion and politics, but really, it's at the heart of everything. Well, I was thinking, reading your column about the the Orwell sort of spectrum, where you know Orwell identified his upbringing as lower upper middle yes. class, and once you start doing that, you can be sort of upper upper middle class and lower 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 class and I, I think these divisions that they're, they're almost more in the eye of y you than in than anyone looking at you um and I think we sort of both romanticize um and sort of downplay or upgrade our, our class depending on who we're talking to it's interesting as well because Labour regularly do focus groups of the sort of people they need to win. A lot of them are people who voted Tory in 2019, having voted Labour before. And what they found is that, similar to what you were saying before, Alva, there's a degree of elasticity here. You know, something they've identified is that when times are good and people feel like the economy can service their aspirations, they identify as, as middle class. But when times are tough and I think for a lot of people, times are tough right now, they cleave to, you know, a working class identity they might have otherwise wanted to move on from. Yeah, well, I think, so it's very appropriate for this moment and going into the next election. But I also think that what you what you capture in your column, Patrick, is exactly as you say, how, how much this is sentimentalised by Keir Starmer personally and some of the people around him. And it's not just the people in the shadow cabinet who you mentioned who do come from working class backgrounds, West Streeting, Bridget Phillips and Angela Rayner. But I was struck a few years ago, I interviewed Rachel Rees before she became shadow chancellor again. And we were talking about who the who the Labour Party is for and how far it had, you know, had traveled from her from its roots in her view. And I was really struck by a by really a very sentimentalized idea of the working class. She actually I mean, this was maybe a lockdown thing, but we were speaking in the evening over Zoom. She was in her living room. It was dark outside, but she was a bit tearful speaking about her grandparents who had worked in factories in the in the 1930s. And her grandmother had a lung condition from she she would tie the, the, the rope to make shoelaces. And she developed a lung condition from the tar that she had to breathe in. Mm. And, um she was a bit tearful talking about it and it, it's so fundamental to 
how Rachel Reeves conceives of her politics. And she Rachel Reeves is not her really herself working class, but her labour politics are for her grandparents. And really this idea that um, everyone that the Labour Party is for are people like her grandparents. But, I mean, there's a funny... <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase the quote in your column, Pat. You know that um, one Labour MP reminding the Labour leader that you know people and um, some working class people can be shits as well. Um, I, I think sometimes maybe the Labour leadership needs to be reminded of that because it, that the, this view of of the working class can be so sentimentalised. But I think that it makes complete sense to mm. me that Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves in particular want to pursue this when it's so fundamental to who they see themselves as and what they think the Labour Party really is for. Well, apologies for anyone offended by uh, that industrial language there. Let's uh, move on accordingly. Uh, Yesterday, some very sad news uh, for anybody who's been anywhere near a television uh, in the past well, seven decades. Uh, Veteran broadcaster Sir Michael Parkinson died at the age of 88. Uh, He's interviewed Clearly, thousands and thousands, literally more than 2,000 of the world's biggest stars uh, on his chat show on BBC and ITV. But, you know, reflecting on this, Laura, reflecting on all the clips we've seen on social media and on telly over the past couple of days, it does sort of seem like a sort of format that's very much from another age, be that because we watch less and less sort of linear television in our living rooms and also because of a change in celebrity culture as well. Well, I, I think formally, you know, Parky would get someone on his couch and, and they would appear in your sitting room on a Saturday night. And that might be the nearest you got to touching the hem of their Hollywood garments. Um, that might be as intimate as you were ever going to get with a star. And you think now about celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow or Reese Witherspoon, who, you know, you can't get them off Instagram. Um, and they're telling you about, you know, their breakfast and their bowel movements and their sex life. Um, you know, every spit and cough. Um, and so it, a lot of the mystery is lost. And, you know, they now go on a chat. So you think, well, what more is there that you can possibly tell us? And in a way, when celebrities now appear on television, as opposed to, say, a social media channel, it's always kind of doing a puff piece for their next film. It's very staged. There's probably been a PR, you know, briefing what questions may or may not be asked. Um, whereas I think the parky format, I think you almost felt like, you know, you really were getting an insight in, into into a life that, you know, wasn't your own, but was sort of terribly tantalising and, um, and exotic. It's interesting as well, because I know this is something we always try and do on Times Radio, but the encounters you see from Parkinson are genuinely discursive. They feel like conversations. And that feels much, much more difficult to do, Alva, in today's sort of very confrontational, polarised and short attention span ridden media landscape? Yeah, I think so. Although I actually think that we need an honourable mention for Graham Norton, um, whose show I don't I don't always watch, but when I do, I'm always struck by how good it actually still is, even though it doesn't have that sort of feeling of event television the way Parkinson would have um in the past um i think he kind of shakes it up by making the celebrities interact with each other which makes it a bit more discursive and it can go off in all sorts of directions where you have like miriam margulies beside a rapper and they're just coming from such different worlds Mm. and the class between them is really really glorious i think there are still ways that some chat shows can navigate it but um as as laura was saying i think it's it's the fact that probably the behind the scenes these things are so much more 
engineered by PLRs and the sort of the parameters are set and, and you can't have that kind of just genuine conversation going off in all directions the way you used to. Laura, how do we how do we avoid being played by these people as as journalists or you know as as ever it's that balance between access and insight but you know how how can we break the stranglehold of uh, of these uh, of these nefarious pr people I think it's very difficult. I once interviewed Molly King of the Saturdays. Um, this was when I was a freelance journalist and it was to promote she had a deal with strawberry magnum ice cream. Uh, and, and the idea was she would do an interview, but at some point she had to say how much she loved strawberry magnum ice cream. Um, and the PR was sitting in the room. And at one point I dared to ask her about you know her, her relationship, her love life. And there was this kind of from the PR and, and that was it you know there was no more and we had to get onto the ice cream um and you know, I, I almost think there's no point doing an interview like that I feel actually you know editors and, and journalists sh- should refuse and just say you know that's not an interview that is just it's just paid you know unpaid advertising we're not doing it I think there needs to be a little bit of pushback um and I think you are allowed to say you know if you're interviewing a director of a company we're doing it but you know, can't have your head of comms in the room we're doing it over brunch at the Ivy whatever you want to do but it's you and me and a tape recorder um and and not a kind of you know a security guard but then as you say Laura as you both said they could get on Instagram write a long long uh long thing in their iPhone notes app and, and tweet it out. You know, that's the sort of, that is the difficulty for journalists now. You know, if you're Michael Parkinson today and you, the Michael Parkinson equivalent, you ask a difficult question of a celebrity or indeed a celebrity says something on your show and then they get a load of pushback on Twitter. You see this quite regularly now. You know, celebrities seem at ease on, on a TV show or a radio show or a podcast. They say something, they're hit with pushback immediately. And Albert, you know, they'll tweet out, oh, I, I said this thing, but I now realise it was the, the interviewer led me down the garden path or, you know, I didn't mean it. It's quite, you know, those moments, you know, those moments we associate with Parkinson probably couldn't happen today for that reason. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to make us too despairing as journalists on on our Friday mornings, but I it, I think it's the same with political journalism and political interviews. I did a whole episode on this um, a few months ago, and the kind of just dis- depressing conclusion I reached with Nick Robinson, who is one of my guests, was that we're we're really not necessary anymore. Um, it used to be that someone like Margaret Thatcher felt that she had to submit herself to a grilling from someone like Brian Walden because that was the right way to get her argument out. She kind of enjoyed the back and forth as well, but it was also that that was her way of accessing this big audience. Whereas if you have the direct way of contacting people through Instagram or Twitter, you you have you have choices that you didn't have before, and it's only a certain type of politician or celebrity who's willing to kind of do do the less predictable thing and still submit s- submit themselves to the to the grilling of journalists. Well, I listened a couple of weeks ago to the Westminster Insider interview with Fiona Hill, Theresa May's former um, assistant, and I that was I, I thought that was a real marmalade dropper. I was kind of listening in the back of the car with my jaw hanging open because she was so frank and so open and actually quite moving about her experiences of basically being defenestrated, you know, over overnight or in the space of one morning I thought it was an extraordinary interview and I think it just goes to show that sometimes you get the right combination of interviewer and interviewee and you just you know it's, it's extraordinary yeah and I think maybe this is the answer the podcast which itself as you all know Alva probably not immune to 
you know, PR bods trying to shape the discussion. Indeed, lots of uh, PR companies now have their own podcast. But the podcast, indeed, indeed, radio, you know, we turn this show into a podcast every day, the Redbox podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast from, for long-form political discussion. You know, podcasts have sort of filled that gap that, you know, if Parkinson was around today, he would probably be a podcast host speaking to people for an hour at a time. And there are, there are lots of people who are happy to submit themselves to... Uh, to uh, to that sort of treatment yeah but there is a lot more choice I suppose so it means I think that then there's a little bit of a, a sort of race to the bottom so I'm being so depressing on this but I actually think that you know uh, an individual celebrity now has so many options so many podcasts they could go on or indeed they so could start their own or they could start their own. So many different interviewers they could speak to I think we observe in some bits of politics or um, celebrity following that actually then people opt for the easiest interviewer and then and and then in order then you're kind of in this difficult balancing act between um access and and a good interview when when you're there because I think often people pick a very favorable interviewer um to conduct an interview or a very soft interview um so Yes, podcasts can kind of shake up the format, but I also think it's a very different landscape. And just speaking, you know, to people who work at the BBC, at, at, but very established media, I think that they are a little bit perturbed by it. And something I'm quite conscious of, you, you know, people take for granted, I think, that the interviewees is in front of this person and, and forget what what has taken place to get them there in the first place and whatever compromises will have had to be made to get to that point. Uh, now, a British museum curator has been sacked after what's been labelled as a Netflix-style heist. Gold jewellery and semi-precious stones disappeared from the museum. They're thought to be worth tens of millions of pounds. Well, Jack Blackburn is history correspondent for The Times. He broke this story. Talk us through it, Jack, because I was reading The Times' is very good reporting on this. This person, accused of this, dismissed allegedly first rumbled when people spotted Roman jewellery on eBay. Uh, well, I must stress it was not me who broke the story. It was uh, my colleagues, Constant Kampner and... Um uh, Billy Kemba, Kemba. Billy yeah. Kemba. Uh, and um, the, the in this particular instance, uh, the, there is some debate about whether this classifies as a heist. I had to because it is it is a man who it's more grazing, really. Um, you know, he has access to um, the uh, the archives and all the things which are in storage. Um, so the apparent uh, the, the apparent story, obviously, um, he denies all the allegations. But mm. you know, it, the, the modus operandi here would be simply. Drip, drip, drip. A little bit here, a little bit there. We're not dealing with, you know, George Clooney by a pool doing lots of planning. Um, you know, it, it is it is opportunism. Um, and because it's, it's important to note, what we see in, say, the British Museum or the National Gallery or an institution like that is a mere fraction of what they have in their archives yeah. and their stores and stuff there, day-to-day researching and making available to other institutions, right? There is so much stuff yeah. behind closed doors. I, I mean, I've had the good fortune to go to a, a few storage archives. They're amazing places. They're sort of um, massive museums compressed into these little halls of you know, drawers that come out and they've all got these extraordinary artefacts that are either on rotation or sometimes are, are li- sort of overlooked for decades. There's a whole wealth of stuff which museums uh, care for, which we don't even see. Uh, 
think what's interesting about this particular instance is it's a, it is it is that. It's the stuff that we don't see. Whereas normally, the very nature of being a museum is putting something incredibly valuable right up close to members of the general public and therefore putting it in danger. Uh, and so there is always a tension there which makes very valuable pieces highly nickable. Well, what's the most audacious nicking in history? It would be how defining audacious. Certainly the, the biggest is the theft of the Mona Lisa mm. in 1911, which was a, a man called Vincenzo Perugia, who was working at the Louvre. So ah. if, we were, if we're going to give tips to heisters, it's get a, get job, a job at the target. Try, try, um, try really hard in school, do a degree in history of art, get a job <laughs> as a curator. Um, in this particular instance, he was uh, more of a, a menial worker um, at the... Um, at the museum, and um, he had the brilliant scheme of taking it off the wall. Um, <laughs> and it was it, in the early 20th century, the Louvre was not the absolutely sort of tourist crammed, trap, yeah. uh, thing that it was now. Nobody noticed that the painting was missing for some hours until somebody came along to do a sketch of it and went, Where's the painting? Um, all he did was he took it into a stairwell, I believe. He took it out of the frame and the box it was in, um, and then hid the canvas in his. Uh, un- he took his overall off and wrapped it round the canvas. Uh, and then he put it in his trunk for two years before taking it home to Italy. Wow. He thought it was a patriotic cause. Um, and then he was caught when he tried to give it or sell it. It's, de- he, it's debated as whether he was actually trying to sell it to a museum. Well, Laura Freeman, you're our chief art critic. Let me bring you in here. What was your reaction when you read this story about the British Museum? Well, I think it shows the kind of gulf between the fantasy and the reality of art heists, because I think <laughs> when you hear that, you imagine, do you know that ridiculous scene in the Catherine Zeta-Jones film Entrapment, where she wears a slinky leotard and she rehearses going through all the lasers in the gallery with, I think it's Sean Connery watching her slightly lasciviously. Um, you wouldn't get away with that post Me Too. But, you know, so that's what we imagine, or it's that ridiculous Netflix series that was on last year, Lupin, you know, it's sort of all very glamorous and sexy and planned, or it's Ocean's Eleven, it's George Clooney as you say and I'm sure the reality is the vast majority of cases when things go missing it's an insider job or it's a connoisseur who's got rather carried away and obsessed with sort of the lust of possession um it's often someone who actually doesn't even really want to sell it they just want to to have it I mean there was a case a few years ago of um someone who'd been caught stealing pages out of manuscripts at places like the Bodley and the British Library and it's actually just someone who's sort of so in love with their subjects that they have to have to own it they 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 need it they don't want it in the collection they want to you know, sort of, you know, pour over it in the privacy mm. of their own homes. Um, I, I, I've never really understood what the point of, of stealing something like the Mona Lisa is or the Monk is. I don't know how you can sell it on um, without someone shopping you or working out that, you know, it, it, it's something nefarious has happened because these things are so recognisable. Whereas I can just about imagine if you're stealing, say, Roman coins or tiny bits of jewellery, something that, you know, could turn up on a dig or you might have inherited from your great-great-grandfather. That was Laura Freeman and Alva Ray. Remember, you can listen to all of the columnists we've been speaking to on the podcast this week by going to the Times website. Make sure you get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, has political correctness come to bury comedy or to save it? It's a big question, with many people arguing that wokeness is what restricting what comedians can and can't say. Uh, you only have to look at the Father Ted writer Graham Linehan being unable to find a ve- venue in Edinburgh that will host his gig this week. But others believe that PC hasn't gone mad. It's made comedy more diverse, more attractive, more inventive and accessible to more people. One person putting forward that argument is David Stubbs. He's written a book called Different Times, A History of British Comedy. Uh, David is a music journalist and I've been speaking to him. I asked him what British comedy looked like before political correctness. British comedy prior to, say, the young ones, something like that, the early 80s and alternative comedy. It wasn't always problematic, but it was, sometimes it was by exclusion, really. Take a comedy like The Good Life. I mean, no one ever accused The Good Life of being racist, but that's because there weren't any black people at all. And that was the kind of landscape with a lot of comedy at that time. And which is why, oddly enough, you know, when problematic series like Love Thy Neighbour or even Mind Your Language came along, despite the kind of the dubious foreign stereotypes. A lot of ethnic minority people like that in this country and people of colour actually appreciated, well, at, very, at the very least, we're on the telly, you know. So I, I guess the, the thing was that it was obviously British comedy is dominated by white men and a lot of British comedy, whether it was Hancock or Steptoe, was about white male predicaments and as such it wasn't sort of thoroughly inclusive really and of course as well as that there was sexism there was odd bits of racism it wasn't rampant necessarily it was like I compare it in the book to like fish bones you know like you might have perfect decent comedy and then all of a sudden you come oh god you know a bit of racism or whatever or some sort of dodgy homophobic moment and there just wasn't a sensibility there there just wasn't and that really only came about really when with the rise of alternative comedy in the late 70s which came about at the same time as punk. And it had a similarly iconoclastic spirit. It was getting rid of the kind of the hoary old cliches, the dinosaurs or whatever, you know. So, I mean, there came a point where it wasn't just that this is, you know, this is politically incorrect. It's just now. There was a time when, for instance, it was mandatory every time a character from a Chinese or Japanese character comes on screen for a gong to sound or for a kind of portly woman like Hattie Jakes, you know, walking down the corridor in, in, you know, in a carry-on film for a bassoon to strike up. Just little things like that. And so, yeah, so eventually, I think, when there came a point that says, look, you can't be racist, you can't be homophobic, you can't do these kind of stupid jokes anymore. They are offensive. Now, that in itself isn't a particularly funny thing to say. However, as you mentioned, what it did mean is that comic creators had to think harder. They had to think about life 
as it's actually lived. They had to be kind of more naturalistic. They had to be more imaginative. And they had to be more inclusive. You know, they just had to think hardly because you can't like, rely on these kind of lazy stock stereotypes anymore. And, and the consequence... You're not just thinking about what is going to get a laugh in, for instance, a working men's club on there, the apocryphal Wheel Tappers and Shunters Social Club. Yeah. Right? You're, not, you're, you're not thinking about... Well, what are the what are the old mm. lines that reliably get a laugh there? Comedy is moving to new places, new formats, mm. new audiences, and yeah. some things, as you say, were beyond the pale. So you have to think, well, hang on, if I can't re- resort to the old the old lines, if they're considered problematic, what what does make people laugh? How can I, you know, yeah. make jokes that, um, as you say, are, are inclusive? Yeah, that's right. You know, and it's, it's vast, vast range. I mean, John Cleese at one point said, like, what, what exactly is a woke joke? Well, all a woke joke is, it isn't like that kind of comedian from the far of Bernard Wright on. There's a black fella, a Pakistani, and a Jew in a nightclub. What a fine example of an integrated community. <laughs> <laughs> it's simply making jokes that don't punch down, that don't, that aren't kind of exclusive, that don't sort of... Um, you know, take the mickey out of marginalised groups or whatever, or disabled people and things like that. It's it's that manages to be funny without resorting to that. That's all that woke comedy is. And you can sort of stuff that, there's nothing problematic about Tommy Cooper. And and stuff that you know you can still have a bit of an edge. You would say I sort of think of you know that the early clips of a young Patrick Keelty wearing a balaclava and joking about IRA bomb warnings, which is, mm. you compare the sort of Irishman jokes, which were the stock in trade of yeah. so many club comics in the 70s, then you mm. have sort of someone joking about the same subject matter, but and it has a bit of edge and it's genuinely subversive seeing a young, uh, a young Irishman on stage in a balaclava talking about the IRA, but it's a different kind of joke, yeah. but it's not toothless. Yeah, you can be, you can be edgy in that sense, you know, and you can be kind of political, but it's all about the kind of the pertinency of it, I guess, really. And if you're kind of punching up as well, you know, I mean, there's nothing that's fine with that. You know, there are there are plenty of kind of all too overwhelmingly powerful people and forces in this world that that do need a bit of a kind of you know comedic hammering. And it's absolutely yeah, that that that's fine. It's not about you know, it's not about just being inane, definitely. Uh, your book, you know, is such an interesting and comprehensive journey through uh, the history of British. Uh, comedy in the past century but who who would you say were the sort of worst offenders if we're thinking about the culture the old comic culture who Hmm. would you say is sort of emblematic of that are you are you talking people like bernard manning for instance yeah, I mean, you know, Bernard Manning more... It's straight with Bernard Manning, because if you actually go onto YouTube and see the stuff that he did actually on television, it's actually pretty, it's, it's actually pretty innocuous, to be honest, and he actually shows his chops as a kind of excellent comedian with great timing, you know. All of the stuff that he did was kind of, you know, it was after hours, it was, you know, it was off-screen, it was in the working mm. men's clubs, you know. So that, yeah, that was all pretty awful. In terms of actual stuff that made our screens, well, there's a variety. I, I mean, I think that perhaps... I mean, you know, I mentioned Love Thy Neighbour. I mean, that is it's just particularly grim. It just really has no redeeming features. And, and for people who might be too young to remember, it's the premise is, you know, a West Indian immigrant, white neighbour, um, with predictable consequences. I'll thank you to remember you're a guest in this country. And as such, <laughs> you should do us the courtesy of observing our customs. <laughs> Man, it is so hypocritical. You call me brother, right? But do you really think of me as a brother? Yeah, and then a little twist, you know, the West Indian, you know, the guy is Tory and um, Eddie or Jack Smith, you know, his character is, is, is Labour. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't really... The fact is, there's just this kind of relentless shower of, like, N-words and, like, racial epithets that Rudolph Walker's character has to sort of put up with. And it's probably well-meaning, you know, the people made it well-meaning, but clearly they aren't... Sat- you know, they'd say they're satirising racism, but they're not. They're kind of 
perpetrating really and there's a lot of belly laughs uh, simply at the fact of like this torrent of racial abuse you know completely backfires similar thing actually with till deathers do part a lot of people that were watching the alf garnet character you know who was this kind of bigger you know and, and, and again you know and this intense dislike of black people where have you been i'm sorry i couldn't make it this morning buona, but i had to go to heathrow meet my cousin Oh, it marvellous. Like they're flying them in now. A lot of people, I don't think they were laughing at the racism. They were laughing, they found it cathartic. They were laughing along with the fact that he's kind of just openly using all of these curse words because they were considered impolite. You know, it really kind of backfired. I don't think that, ne- that people like Warren Mitchell necessarily realised this. Would you say, though, that the idea that, yes, political correctness draws sort of a cordon sanitaire around some topics, but tastes change... What do you say to satirists who say, look, now there's a degree of sensitivity to such an extent that you couldn't make something like Brass Eye now? I mean, that presupposes that Brass Eye, that iconic Channel 4 satire, really, really subversive stuff, would all uh, still stand the test of time. You know, as someone who's watched it all, you know, I I think it's a great series. But, you know, what do you say to people who say, look, you know, I'm not prejudiced, et cetera, et cetera, but the sort of atmosphere of political correctness or, you know, sensitivity means that it's harder to make jokes that do offend and, and do outrage. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's anything, for me, fundamentally problematic about Brass Eye at all. It might be that if you go back and look at, there might be one or two little bits here and there or whatever, but fundamentally, I think it, it, it's absolutely great. And again, it's it's punching up. It's taking the people that it's, you know, it's, it's lampooning as sort of self-important celebrities who are conned into coming on the show and, like, making dubious comments about, you know. And so I don't know. I don't think it's, you know, it's probably, I think it's actually perfectly easy to make comedy that's innovative, mm. that's quite hard-hitting, that doesn't sort of resort to, you know, frankly, kind of lazy, there's a sort of lazy bullying of like marginalised peoples that you had before. Let's talk about politics. The beginning of your book, this is a really interesting passage. Mm. You remind us that Michael Portillo, uh, former Defence Secretary, Cabinet Minister, once told Boris Johnson, a young Boris Johnson, that he would have to make a decision between politics and comedy. I mean, I'm mm. going to out you as someone who was actually at Oxford with Boris Johnson. Yeah. Do you... You know, one, did you see him then as sort of a, a, a sort of inherently comic character, almost well-cultivated comic creation? And two, what sort of comedian do you think he would have been had he, had he taken Portillo's advice and chosen comedy? Well, he might have been, I don't know, a sort of a Jack Whitehall type or something like that, you know, very sort of self-deprecating. But obviously, the dominant Johnson is this sort of like, almost like, you know, this ruthlessness, really, and this sort of sense of entitlement and this determination to kind of, you know, take up top spots, you know, even though he can't actually bother to do the job once he's, he's got it. You know, it's just sheer entitlement. The reason for that, Boris Johnson, actually, was... In a sense, it's kind of like, I do actually feel there's something in the British capital where perhaps we're a bit overdetermined by comedy mm. to the extent that, like, Boris Johnson kind of rose to prominence through, have I got news for you? When I first appeared as a guest on this show, I complained that the whole thing was scripted and fully rehearsed. I'd now like to complain in the strongest possible terms that it isn't. Boris Johnson, not incapable, as you say, of being funny, of mastering timing, of turning yeah, yeah, a yeah. phrase, that can be deployed to great effect for political ends. I mean, yes, yes. And in his particular case, obviously, he, I mean, to be honest, it was a joke that, that got very, very unfunny indeed, certainly the longer that he was in charge. But certainly, for, you know, for a lot of people for a long time, he was able to sort of play up to this kind of something that was complete antithetical to what he actually was, you know, or bozzer, a sort of man of the people, perhaps precisely because he was a bit of a posho and the people felt that somehow, you know, he had the time of day for them. He fundamentally did not. Um, but, you know, to give off that kind of sort of bluff, sort of 
you know, geniality, clearly sort of clicked with a great many people. Again, there was an anti-seriousness about him, which again, you know, I think people became somewhat over-attached to. Speaking of Boris Johnson, you've said that the likes of Boris Johnson and some of his colleagues are too grotesque to satirise. Do you think political yeah. satire, we're losing the art of political satire in this country? I think political satire is always, you know, it, it's it's never been more invidious really than, than right now. I mean, you look at the kind of caricatures that this recently rebooted Spitting Image did, which I didn't think was a success at all. You know, the Donald Trump, the Boris Johnson, they're almost flattering, really. So we've got politicians these days, unfortunately, who are out grotesquing, you know, even the kind of the latex grotesques of spitting image. Yeah, it, it, it's thoroughly invidious, really. I mean, satire has never really been, you know, this kind of great wonderful political force in this country. I mean, you know, even at the height of spitting image, when people were sort of laughing and laughing away like Margaret Thatcher <laughs> on a weekly basis, um, she kept getting re-elected. But he didn't really have any sort of, sort of significant political impact in that respect. I think what I cite as actually having more of a political impact is I talk in the book about there was a lot of cruelty in British comedy in the noughties. Some of it was brilliant, you know, things like Peep Show and the thick of it, whatever. But there was also like a return to things like blackface and stuff like that. And there was things like Little Britain and Borat, which, you know, I think, you know, one or two of the people involved now have apologised since and said, look, we wouldn't do that now. And I think that the, perhaps the reason for the kindness is perhaps the last 13 years of government and the imposition of things like austerity and some of the callousness that has been imposed by the kind of forces is, is, is almost like it's something it's broader than comedy but there's been a return to a sort of sensitivity a kindness a sense that we've all got to kind of look actually look out for each other and care for each other because wider forces the political forces that work right now in the country are very uncaring and you see that not just in comedy you see in you see in music you see like just a little thing like Louis Capaldi at um, Glastonbury you know when he had his like little tick and he couldn't finish yeah, couldn't I was finish. There, yeah, and, yeah. and the crowd just said look mate don't worry we've got you we've got you that's such a beautiful touching moment this is Times Radio. Patrick Maguire in for Matt Chorley here on Times Radio. And for today's big thing, we've been hearing from David Stubbs, the author of Different Times, a history of British comedy. He argues, among other things, that British comedy has been saved by political correctness. Now, we know that's not an opinion shared by one of the biggest stars of British and indeed American comedy, Ricky Gervais. But now there's so much outrage and we hear about it and it's taken seriously, you know. There's Oxbridge comedians writing for the posh papers, thinking of the rules of comedy, they're laying it down, laying down the law, right? There's all stuff like, um, comedy should punch up, you should never punch down, you should never punch down. Sometimes you've got to punch down. People get offended when they mistake the subject of a joke with the actual target. Yeah. And they're not necessarily the same thing. You can make jokes about any subject, it depends what the joke is. Yeah. There's no... There's no rules. You can't joke about this. You can. You should be you able to. You just can. Yeah. Okay. And there's nothing sacred. That's thoroughly outmoded now, that mode of thinking. It's not really in the sort of contemporary spirit of the times. And, you know, there's nothing about the kind of principal comedy that like to be free and to absolutely say and do whatever you want. And honestly, that, that kind of thing is, I know he kind of, you know, he sells, he still has his big sort of net specials and stuff like that. But it's a bit like groups like Jethro Tull. They weren't destroyed by punk, but they, they, their day had gone. His day has gone. You know, he's an old man. He's he's about 61 or whatever. And his, his day has actually gone. And those ideas are actually now obsolete. And people coming through, it's just leaving them cold because you shouldn't be kind of like, basically, you know, stop with the bullying, really. Um, you draw a connection between Dad's Army and Brexit. Talk me through that yeah. one. 
I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people, you know, I mean, Dad's Army has been this kind of wonderful, great permanent feature in British comedy ever since it was, it's barely been off the screens ever since the last episode, which was what, 1977. And so I think, you know, there is a sort of great sense that it represents, you know, Britishness and our kind of pluck and our sort of, you know, sense of independence as an isle of nation, all that kind of thing. Your name will go on the list. <laughs> and when we win the war, you will be brought to account. Write what you like. You're not going to win this war. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> Whistle while you work. Hitler is at work. He's half army, so's his army. Whistle while you work. Your name will also go on the list. <laughs> what is it? Don't tell him, Pike. Pike. <laughs> now, the ironic thing is that the one of the co-creators, uh, Jimmy Perry, um, he was interviewed about 10, 15 years ago, and he was talking about European Union. And he he said, look, I really, <laughs> I really think that younger people really ought to be taking a great interest in Europe and European Union. And the reason he was saying that, he, he was of a generation, he was that wartime generation that really appreciated the need to serve sort of peace and prosperity across across Europe. And in fact, you know, the people that, that, that kind of come from the whole Brexit people are actually significantly younger than him and perhaps imagine somehow that they'd sort of fought in the war, but, you know, were probably born in like, the late 40s, early 50s. So I, I just thought that, that was very significant. I mean, I think, that, you know, I think Dad's Army is, you know, is a wonderful series, but it's a very wise series as well. And you're a music journalist by profession, yeah. David, but you see comedy and music as forces in strict opposition. I love this line from your book, comedy and pop and rock music are in many ways as incompatible as ice cream and gravy to yeah, wholly that's... distinct pleasures. I mean, mm. but people like Tim Minchin, you know, very... A very acerbic musical comedian. I'm thinking right now of his song about uh, Cardinal Pell, the Australian Archbishop who was accused of child sex abuse, and uh, you know was uh, urging him to come home, Cardinal Pell from the Vatican. We all just want you to come home, Cardinal Pell. I know you're not feeling well, and being crooked much fun, even so. He would say, yeah. "Well, hang on, that 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 that's not true. I'm a I'm a great satirist and musician, and one enhances the power of the other." Yeah, I mean, this is it. I mean, I sort of, you know, that, like the ice cream gravy line. I kind of set that up, and then sort of trying to find you know exceptions that prove it, as it mm. were. Sometimes, though, I think that the primary, you know, you can have very funny songs or whatever, but you're primarily enjoying them as pieces of comedy rather than as pieces of music. I guess you know, I guess it's my sort of attitude towards music as this wholly serious kind of immersive, sublime sort of pleasure. Really, I guess is, is what I'm saying there. And I do cite someone like Stuart Lee though, who has quite avant-garde taste in music, mm. and I think that in a way that kind of informs or at least parallels the sort of the structures of his comedy. You know, which I can feel like I don't know, sort of free, like free jazz, jazz or yeah, exactly, music like that, yeah. Just to return briefly to to Brexit, have you found that political polarization, particularly post Brexit, has made mm. Comedy sourer, less unifying, or am I missing the point? I mean, I think that there. I mean, obviously, there is supposed to be a kind of a culture war going on at the moment, and a sort of divide between like older views and younger ones. Um, I don't think it's exactly sour. I think, and I don't perhaps quite mention isn't it but really I think that perhaps one thing you're getting now is a kind of hybrid comedies that are you know they've got a sort of strong dramatic sort of sort of emotional range of depth to them or whatever it gets back to that kindness thing that I was talking about and you know and that isn't, in itself isn't sort of like necessarily being pro or anti-Brexit or anything like that I just think it's 
it's this kind of need, it's a cultural need at the moment, and people are a lot of responding to, but a sort of compassion, really. We've been talking yeah. to, you know, we're talking about Bernard Manning's comic, Timey. Do you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think you know, people find it increasingly difficult to draw that sort of distinction? I suppose it's a perennial question, isn't it? Art versus the artist. Do you find that harder in the modern political context? You know, it, it, it depends on what the, you know, the actual material they deliver. Mm-hmm. If the material they deliver is free of all of this stuff, and if it's great material, then fine. It's interesting, you know, in the late 1970s, you know, there are a lot of comedians who were bitterly very anti-union, you know, at a time when, you know, and I, and I think, you know, I mean, personally, I kind of regret the decline in trade union power, you know, given the sort of social inequality we have these days. But they were bitterly anti-union, but they didn't, I mean, Les Dawson was, and he wrote about a lot that's in private, but he didn't, it let it impinge on his work. You know, Les Dawson was a comic genius, and, and that was absolutely fine. Kenneth Williams in the Carry On films, you know, he, again, you know, somebody might be the rates that he was getting, he really ought to have thought about unionising, they all should have done. But um, he had, went on these bitter, nasty tirades, whatever, and you see some of it in his diaries and stuff yes, like that. Yeah. But it doesn't impinge on his comic performances, which are just magnificent. I mean, there is, there is one carry-on film, you know, where which is explicitly anti-union, carry-on at your convenience. And it was actually a failure just because it was so making the point in such a sort of didactic, heavy-handed way. It just wasn't in the sort of normal spirit of carry-on films. Are you optimistic for the future of British comedy? It's hard to say, really, because, I mean, one of the two sort of that emerged recently have been about, again, this is since I wrote the book, talking about how comedy writing rooms in this country are kind of being disbanded or they're being folded into kind of drama sections. So I think, in a sense, comedy is potentially under siege. I mean, I still think, I thought my last line is that, you know, it's working towards being a safe space for all. And I am optimistic about that because I'm optimistic about, you know, younger generations and everything they're putting up with. I think that they're there's a sort of spirit, there's a more compassionate spirit, I think, that's at large that, you know, was kind of unknown. Well, not exactly unknown, but it, it's different from something when I was growing up. There's a sort of more commonplace compassion. And I'm sort of optimistic in that respect that things will move further in that direction. And as I say, none of this inhibits comedy. It just means that it, it's, it, it you know, improves it insofar as it becomes more imaginative. It becomes more about thinking about life as it's actually lived. And I think that I, I can see all of that continuing, definitely. And I don't think there's going to be a kind of return to the sort of the days of fishbones, as it were, in comedy and bigotry and homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see any imminent return to that. So in that respect, I'm optimistic, yeah. I, I think what I'd like to see, I guess this is sort of a class issue, I'd like to see it across the board, but this is, again, it's music as well, things like that, that more avenues of potential participation for working class people or whatever, because otherwise, you know, comedy, like music, can be in danger of just being a kind of recreation or a career pursuit of people, you know, with a whole shed load of money, basically, and that's not healthy. So there you have it, political correctness hasn't gone mad, it might just have saved comedy. That's according to David Stubbs, the author of a new book on British comedy. Thanks very much to David and thanks very much to you for listening over the past two weeks. It's always great to have your company and I'll see you again soon. Matt's back on Monday, but in the meantime, remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Welcome back to Two Judgy Girls. I'm Mary from the Bay. And I'm Courtney from L.A. 
TJG is the podcast where we spill all the tea on your favorite reality TV shows, celebrity gossip, and everything in between. We're here to bring you our unfiltered opinions, hilarious commentary, and plenty of laughs along the way. We're two SDSU Delta Gamma sisters with a microphone and a whole lot of opinions. Each week, we dive headfirst into the wild world of reality television, from Bravo to all the trash TV you could want. We break down the drama, dissect the latest scandals, and share our thoughts on everything from the jaw-dropping moments to the embarrassing antics. But that's not all. We're not here to just gossip. We're here to connect with you, the jurors, and share our love of all things pop culture. Whether we're dishing on the latest celebrity breakups, discussing our favorite guilty pleasure movies, or sharing embarrassing stories from our own lives, we promise to keep it real, keep it fun, and keep you coming back for more. Come judge with us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.